everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Take This Job and Love It. This is a podcast from Yale's Office of Career Strategy, aimed at helping you through the various aspects of finding a job and building a career that you love. My name is Claire Zala, and I'm a senior in Yale College. I work with the Common Good and Creative Career team to support Yale students interested in pursuing careers that make a difference and encourage creativity. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Jody Grant. Jody is the executive director of the After School Alliance for, for going on an amazing 16 years. The After School Alliance is a nonprofit public awareness and advocacy organization working to ensure that all children and youth have access to quality, affordable after school programs. Before her current position, Jody was the director of work and family programs for the National Partnership for Women and Families and the general counsel to the Senate Budget Committee and as staff director for a Senate committee. She holds degrees from Harvard Law School and Yale College, where she was senior class president. Thanks for being here today, Jody. Thank you. Happy to be here. Fantastic. Could you please tell us more about your work with the After School Alliance? Why do you think improving access to after school programming is such an important challenge? So, um, you know, the, the big thing about after school is um, it's really about equity. When you think about where kids learn, um, 80% of our learning hours are outside the classroom. And for kids of means, that's all of the enrichment, the tutoring, the sports, um, all of these things that we know help kids be happier and more successful in school, but for children and youth, it also helps them be more successful in life. So I think when it comes to after school, we very much see it as creating opportunities and opening doors for all children. And at the After School Alliance, our mission is for everyone, um, whether you can afford it or not, we want the best possible programming, but then we really wanna make those options available to all kids. And I think one of our biggest challenges is that people always think um, school's important, um, after school is nice, but an afterthought. And I think more and more, as we look at the global economy that we work in, it's not really an afterthought. Um, most of our children and youth find their passions and things they do outside school that are supplementing school. And we wanna really make sure that a kid that has never thought about being an engineer or never thought about being a reporter um, has access to those kinds of opportunities in learning. And so you would say that after-school programming from just intellectual enrichment is super important. I also noticed that you do some nutritional work for children as well. How does that factor into your so, own? Right. I think when you think about after-school, it's really holistic. So obviously there's the educational or academic side. I would say that every bit and probably more important to our work is the social emotional side and the mental health side. So giving kids a safe place where they can learn and grow and interact with other kids and under other caring adults um, to really be themselves. So in a place where they're not graded, where they're not tested, where they're not judged. And I think that is, you know, we call it positive child development, positive youth development, one of the most important things we do. I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention that so many of the kids we serve, particularly in publicly or philanthropically funded programs, are food insecure. And so providing access to meals. And one of the things I fought for with my organization was getting reimbursements for a supper as opposed to a snack for kids in our programs um, is absolutely essential um, and imperative because it's really hard to learn anything if you're hungry. That's so true. And how would you describe kind of like the, your outreach, your, your connection with these schools? Because it's, 
you're not just working with one school, you're working with so many. So is it more of a funding link or do you also help with strategy? So, um, so that's, that's a good question and I'm going to reframe it. So <laughs> our organization represents the almost 8 million kids that are in after-school programs, their parents and their communities. We don't have any members, but we also work with 50 state after-school networks who do advocacy and communications at the state level and about 27,000 after-school programs. So our goal is to provide tools, resources, best practices to those 27,000 programs, as well as to do all we can to build public support and public policies to invest more in high quality programs. And not all of the programs are in schools. So 60% of programs are in schools and obviously part of our stakeholders will be principals or a huge group of supporters. Um, but oftentimes, you know, most of the people running the after-school program are what we'd call community-based organizations. So it might be a YMCA, a Boys and Girls Club, a 4-H, Girls Inc. Um, I can go on and on. And um, many of these programs, it's one leader with multiple partners. So it might be a school district, but they're working, they might be working with um, a soccer group, um, USTA, First Robotics, as well as um, other community-based and um, faith-based or even corporate-based um, partners. Because one of the things for our older youth is we very much um, want to give them opportunities for internships, apprenticeships, and paid jobs as part of their work. You know, it's interesting you mentioned how the After School Alliance also has um, kind of a, a foot in the door when it comes to policy making and promoting policy and public opinion. Um, as you mentioned, you have a background in law. Would you say that that's been an important part of your work as a nonprofit? And would you go so far as to say that to work in nonprofit, it's important to have that background? Um, I'm glad you asked that question. I think the answer is no. Um, you do not need to have a law degree to work for a nonprofit. Um, I do think if you want to go far in a nonprofit, it's useful to have an advanced degree. Um, it could be public policy, it could be law, it could be business, because as an executive director, a lot of my job is writing business plans and raising money. Uh, but I think the legal degree has been useful because when you're doing a lot of policy or advocacy, it's just a way of framing an argument, looking for your strengths, looking for your support, uh, kind of like you know what, what you're doing in college, um, where you're backing up your arguments, but you're also looking for the weak links. And how do you understand what those are? And in the world of advocacy, um, instead of you know trying to figure out an answer to them, um, often we want to embrace our weak links and figure out how to make them stronger. No, that's that's absolutely so true, and I like that kind of holistic um, approach to it of of like an improvement mindset versus a um, kind of a checklist mindset, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Um, so something I very much want to ask about, it's a bit like the elephant in the room at the moment, but um, you're working in the after school space, the education space, in the midst of a pandemic, where I imagine that a lot of the programming that you're usually used to organizing or funding is not able to go ahead. Um, how have you had to adapt your approach during COVID? I am, um, I'm so happy you asked that question. Um, because when we started, I said, oh, I'm exhausted. So I should just tell you what I did today. Um, no, the reality, the reality is that as soon as the pandemic hit, after school programs became all time, all day programs. So where most people say, oh, if school's not out, if school's not in session, if kids are home, why do you need after school? 
And the reality is that we need after school both virtually and in person more than ever. Um, in many cases where schools and some schools just stopped altogether, um, after school programs have been doing all day virtual programming for kids, um, check-ins, meal delivery, lesson plan deliveries, um, trying to create hotspots where kids can learn. Um, after school programs are also at the forefront of providing childcare for essential workers as soon as that need arose, and then helping a lot of the kids because they may not even know how to like hook up to the internet in their home. So I think from the get-go, and we also had after-school programs working with schools so that when the school uh, session um, of virtual learning ended, the after-school session would start. But what we've been really promoting right now is particularly for low-income kids is trying to create what we're calling community learning hubs. So for many wealthier kids across America, their parents have created pods and they're learning with a tutor or some kind of other instructor. They're seeing other kids. Most of my um, fellow Yale graduate friends have kids that are still doing enrichment and um, getting to see other children. They're just doing it in places where they practice all of the best um, safety and health protocols, we call it non-pharmaceutical interventions. And so we have been trying very hard to replicate this across the country. The other thing is that for many of the kids that we serve in publicly funded programs, they, they have parents that don't speak the language, um, so they can't help them with their homework. They may be living in a situation where they don't have a quiet room. They may not have internet. Um, so really, you know, the importance of not just having a place to safely do virtual learning, but also to have that academic that enrichment and support for caring mentors. So we have been working um, all across the country. And if you go to our website, afterschoolalliance.org, you can see examples of these learning hubs that are all across the country. And they can also create all of the best safety protocols. So we'll have you know six to 10 kids with one adult in a room, and that doesn't change. So that if somebody does get exposed or sick, you have to worry about just that one group not closing down the whole program. And I would say that, you know, right now I am working nonstop uh, on summer. So one of the things we're trying to do is after school also has a component that we call summer learning. It's where I got my start. So I did a summer learning program at Yale with the Ulysses S. Grant Foundation. And it's a combination of academics and enrichment, but it doesn't feel like academics because it's summer. So when I was at Yale, I taught English, but we wrote a newspaper and the kids went around um, coming up with stories, taking photographs, um, coming up with headlines, and then we put out a newspaper, which, because I'm old, um, we went to Kinko's and photocopied it there. We can do it the way you can do it now with computers, but um, that is very much the model we're trying to embrace right now. And there is a ton of attention on what people are calling learning loss. And the last thing we want to see is going out to a bunch of communities and particularly this is going to wind up being immigrant kids and kids of color and making summer school feel like punishment for them. So really working to instead do what we call accelerated learning as opposed to deficit learning and create these really fun summer environments. And it's something we have a lot of experience with, but we need to do it on steroids. So we are forging partnerships with teachers, with camps, um, 
with online educators to really see if we can drive some of the COVID dollars that have passed in federal legislation to these summer programs. And then I can get really wonky because one of the challenges in my job is, well, we are fighting at the national level to make sure that legislation with dollars can go to after school and summer learning. And a perfect example is um, right now in the House of Representatives, the education committee passed legislation that is going to fund education for COVID. And the original version of it had to set aside, which is billions of dollars to help students catch up. And it was all designated to a longer school day or a longer school year. And we advocated successfully to change that to include summer learning and after school as additional approaches. Um, so if that passes, we then need to go to each of the states and say, look, you, could, you need to do summer learning and after school and convince governors to use some of their money for that. But then there'll also be a local component because some of this money is gonna go directly to school districts and we're gonna to need to convince them to use that money for things like summer learning and to make sure that we're not just, you know, putting kids in seat time um, for the summer. So I hope that answers some of your question. Um, the other beautiful thing that I love about after school is even now, um, one of the challenges we've had with finding places to safely interact with kids is that schools are closed. And at the after-school community is broad and very creative. So we have places like San Francisco or the entire state of Vermont where they're looking at parks and recs, they're looking at our partners in museums and libraries, in potentially college campuses if they're not open, in office space, um, wherever we can go to put kids safely um, where they can learn. So really thinking outside the box in, you know, I say where, how, and when kids learn. Yeah, it honestly does seem like an incredibly complicated and massive challenge. I'm, I'm very glad that um, that you guys are, are starting now and, and clearly have put so much thought, thought and effort and thoughtfulness behind it. Um, something I, I'm very curious about, especially when it comes to the kind of the nonprofit um, world, is that measuring success can be very difficult because you're not trying to grow profit, you're trying to change people's lives um, for the better, hopefully far into the future. So how would you say as an organization or just personally as a person, how do you measure success? Um, you know, there's so many ways to measure success and um, so many different levels. So I would say, you know, there's kind of like the most local, which is on, I have an amazing team. Like I just described a fraction of what we do in a day. And, um, and part of the reason I, you know, I get to work with so many terrific people I'd like to think is the culture of our office as executive director. So I think success is having, you know, I've been at the organization 16 years having, three um, coworkers who have been there longer than me. Um, and we were four when I started, so they're all still there. Um, being able to have multiple workers that have been with us more than a decade, which is more, you know, often unheard of. Uh, but then I think the, the real way to measure it um, is you can't always measure it in federal dollars because you don't have complete control over that. So it's on, um, on the products we do. What are we producing to help the field? Are they being used? I'm seeing how, you know, states or local after school programs use them. Obviously, if we have a big win um, federally or at a state level for funding, um, that's a really nice way uh, to look at it. But I'd say one of the other challenges with 
up a nonprofit is most of us rely on philanthropists and foundations for our funding. And sometimes your success can be your great your Achilles heel. So, you know, we've had instances where we worked really, really hard to pass statewide funding in a particular state. And we had money from foundations in that state to get all these resources to kids. And as soon as the legislation passed and was enacted, they're like, okay, we're done, you know? And it's like, of course we're not done because now that we have these programs, we have to work on quality. We have to work on access. We have to work on professional development. We have to work on meals. Uh, but it's not to mention the fact that there's, you know, 49 other states out there in the District of Columbia where I live. So I think, you know, that that's one of the hard things. I think sometimes, you know, our time frame is different than the time frame of some of our funders. And so I do think one of the challenges is that um, getting funding isn't isn't always linked to your success. Um, that said, I think that um, the more we produce really strong materials. And I think particularly right now during COVID, um, the after-school field is doing so much, even if most people don't realize it, um, it, it is getting noticed by some of the foundations and companies out there. So I'd like to continue on a little bit of a different um, track because you're doing such incredible work now, but I'd really like to know kind of how you got started on the path toward that work. Um, what what was was this a focus that you expected of yourself when you were at Yale? Because um, like your career has been built around promoting children's health and welfare. Um, has it always kind of been that way for you, or has it? So um, happened? no, I think that's a wonderful question. And you know, whenever I'm talking to Yale students that are thinking about getting into this line of work, I would say you know number one, and I will trace my 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 route, um, do things that are meaningful and where you're learning and growing and building skills. And don't worry 100% if it's not the area that you're passionate about, um, so much as it's an area where you feel like you're making a difference and you, and I shouldn't, let me back up. Don't worry about if it's the perfect fit, worry about are you making a difference and are you growing? And so when I came to Yale, my passion was really civil rights and equity. That was what was driving me. I think I knew I was going to go to law school, uh, and um, and pretty much you know saw law as a way to, hopefully you know, taking um, taking down some of the inequities that exist in our society. And my sophomore year at Yale, I spent the summer with the Ulysses S. Grant Foundation, working with middle schoolers in New Haven, as I mentioned, teaching English to them. And it was extraordinary. I think the combination of what we would say is a very small class size, you know, eight kids at a time, getting to interact with the kids all day long, not just on academics, but we had all sorts of enrichment and field trips. Um, we were able to use the Department of Agriculture free and reduced lunch to feed them meals while we were there. Um, it really opened my eyes to the fact that I thought education was a key to equity. And then I went on to law school. And when I was in law school, I worked as a big sister. So again, with the middle schooler, um, really getting to know um, a little girl in my community and provide support for her. And again, kind of shocking how many challenges she had to face. And then I also did a stint working with incarcerated youth and using legislation, the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act to make sure that they had better access to education. Um, one of the things, and this all ties into my work now, uh, one of the things I did not realize was that many of our incarcerated kids are kids with learning disabilities. 
And particularly if they don't have a lot of resources, if they're kids of color, when they get frustrated in class and they act out, instead of this red flag going up saying, this child needs extra help and support, the red flag is this kid's a troublemaker. And so it's that school to prison pipeline that we absolutely need to break down. And of course, address some of these learning disabilities so that these kids can succeed and that's better for all of us. So when I graduated law school, I came to Washington and I'm like, I wanna work on education. I wanna work on civil rights. I wanna work on equity. And a wise Senator, Carol Mosley Braun from Illinois, who I had gone up to asking for advice said, you can't do anything without money go where the money is, budget committee, appropriations committee, um, that's how you make a difference. And I wound up working for the Senate Budget Committee. My law degree was useful then because I needed a lawyer. And that was the beginning of my career. And I got a pretty broad overview of every type of policy out there working for the Budget Committee. When I left the bu Budget Committee, I was a staff director of an organization called the Senate Steering and Coordination Committee, which is the mouthful. Um, it's basically the Office of Public Liaison. So at that point, I worked with Senate Democrats, um, but I had relationships with the Senate Republicans, with the National Governors Associations, with the unions, with the business groups, um, really trying to build support around different pieces of legislation. and. None of this, you know, if you had told me that I'd be doing what I'm doing now when I was at Yale, I would have been thrilled. But none of this seems to make sense, but it did. Um, after I left the Senate, I was a new mom. Um, it was hard to work the Senate, um, unpredictable hours being a new mom. And I went to work for an organization called the National Partnership for Women and Families, where I did a lot of work on work family issues, um, things like paid sick leave, family medical leave. I actually did have a couple of Supreme Court cases that I worked on as a policy expert while I was there. And then left while I was there, got to know about this new organization, the After School Alliance, um, that was on one piece of it is of course helping working parents because it's parents um, are much more successful at work if they're not worried about their kids in those hours after school. And so got to know the After School Alliance, this position opened up, I applied for it and that's the last 16 years of my life. Um, but as I said, it, it actually looks very linear and to apply for the job at the After School Alliance as executive director, they wanted Hill experience. They wanted experience with budget and appropriations. They wanted experience with nonprofit fundraising. But I didn't do any of that with this job in mind. I did that because I felt like it, I've had this fortune that every single step in my career, I feel like I've been making a difference. And I feel like I've been learning and growing and challenging myself. And I am so lucky to be able to say that, which doesn't mean it's always fun and it's not always easy, um, but it's terrific. And just going back to when you're talking about measurements, I'm the greatest thrill of my life is when I get to go to any of these after school programs and I get to see the frontline staff and the kids working together. And knowing that, you know, what seems very esoteric and high of raising money and best practices and creating measurement tools for these programs in practice is literally, for some kids, changing lives. Um, and that, that makes everything worthwhile. That's so fantastic. And yeah, it's interesting how you, how you said that your career appears very linear. Um, even though you had surprises along the way, but I think the reason it appears that way is because it's very evident how you really pursued your passion and your interests all the way through, even though that took you to different jobs and different positions and different parts of the country, 
um, by following your passion, you ended up somewhere where you feel like you're doing the, the best work that you can, it seems. I think that's right. I think there's other places I could have continued. So, you know, I, I don't know that there's, I think the good news in life is there's a lot of good fits. Um, <laughs> so I think it's very important for me to be working on something I'm passionate about. But, and now, you know, after 16 years after school is my expertise and I know the players, um, I, you know, I know the policy, but I think I could have seen myself going into juvenile justice reform. I could have gone into, you know, early childhood. Um, there's, you know, many, many different ways. I could have gone directly into, you know, civil rights work. Um, I think there's many ways to make a difference in the world and have a job where you feel like you're doing that. And so I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't preclude anything. I would also, you know, I, depending on the audience, um, actually, let me back that up. I would say to anybody that wants to do work in my world or any world, it really matters where you work and who you work for. So you could be working for the best cause in the world. And if you are working with people that are unpleasant or don't um, value a work-family balance, um, then you don't want to work there. Um, I think it's it's really important, and that's something I said earlier, um, to, to work in a place where you're surrounded by people that you admire, um, that you like working with, and that you know most of the drama that you deal with is from outside the office because you're all there because you're committed to the same cause and support each other, not just as professionals, but as individuals. Yeah, and that's how you give your best, is when people around you are giving their best and you're also, everybody gets uplifted by that. Um, so just coming to the end of our, our discussion today, um, I'd love to ask you, what are your hopes for the future? Wow, what are my hopes for the future? Uh, you know, the, the piece I'm working on right now, I mean, there's so many hopes, right? I feel like this past year has been so difficult um, for all of us, um, but particularly for our kids. And I really worry about all the trauma that our kids have been put through. Um, I know I'm a mom and I know that it has been incredibly traumatic for my kids. Um, being in DC, seeing the Capitol invaded, um, you know, we have been marching for Black Lives Matters, but seeing videos of people literally murdered in the streets, um, not to mention if you live in a community where people are dying of COVID, where people are getting sicker, where people are much more likely to be unemployed. So. I, you know, I really hope that this is a turning point in the future where we can have more recognition that creating opportunities does not for some, that creating opportunities for some does not mean taking opportunities away from others. Um, that this is not a zero sum game and that actually we're all gonna do better if we think about equity and opportunities. And then I would say in the world of after school, there's this big thing that I'm working on that I'm really excited about. And I think it's something that has the power to bridge together um, all sorts of um, advocates from all aspects of the political spectrum. And that is really to come out of COVID uh, with a learning ecosystem that is stronger than what we had before. And that since so many of us now know that learning can occur outside the classroom and outside the school building because it's had to, that we start looking at those learning experiences that our kids have and giving them credit for it. 
So looking at models where kids can get credit for jobs, where they can get credits for career and tech ed, where they can get credits for a class that might not be available in their school that they do virtually or they do in the community um, towards graduation, that they have more flexibility with the hours that they go to school as a result of that. And this model does exist in a handful of states, but it's not completely utilized, you know, other partners will be outdoor ed if you do an outward bound or if you do an environmental ed program with 4-H, uh, if you're doing first robotics, that all of these things um, teachers would give kids credits for as if they were electives um, to help them graduate. And I think it's an opportunity, particularly with older youth, to meet many of them where they are to do what we like to call strength-based education, to give them credit for their strengths. And of course, if education is really about preparing our kids for the workforce, then we are foolish not to embrace this. Um, and I should say, you know, of course, there's the whole social emotional component to this too. So I think, you know, if we can start really looking to our communities as learning ecosystems and get more partnerships with our schools, I think it will be better for our students, it will be better for our teachers, and it will be better for our country. That's so interesting. I love what you just said because we've heard so much about how our healthcare ecosystem is um, older damaged, but I, I love the idea that as we're rebuilding and as we're learning and growing from this experience that our learning ecosystem also has to be a focus moving forward because it really does impact every part of our country as a whole and our future. Well, Jody, thank you so much for your time today. I definitely learned a lot and I really enjoyed speaking with you. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Everyone, that was Jody Grant of the After School Alliance. Thank you so much for listening. Cool. All right. That, what time are we at? We're at like 4.06. Oh, you're at 6.06. Okay. I'm on mountain time. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. Is it still an okay time for you? Mountain? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I, I, live, I live most of the time in D.C., but... um. Even, even with my nonprofit job, I, we were, were lucky enough to get away for a month and work from somewhere else. So. Good, awesome. Well, that, that, thank you, that went really great. I will, I had a, where my brain fart was, I'll edit that out, but um, yeah, that was that was super great. That was a really good good length. And I, I feel like you you speak very, like eloquent, eloquently for sure, but I also just love how you can get so much important information in such a concise way that must be your lawyering background or what, that you no. can just speak that way <laughs> it's not it's not lawyers because lawyers use i was just joking with one of my yale classmates like i don't use legalese a lot um it's dealing with policymakers and the media uh mm. because you have to you have to be concise um especially working in the senate right you have a boss that might be doing like 50 different issues like you've got to get their attention and make it crystal clear and then you can go deeper. Um, mm. I love that's such an important skill. That's also something we should be teaching is rhetoric. Well, okay. I know I've, I've kept you probably a little bit longer than we anticipated, but thank you. Oh, no, so it's much. fine. I'm going to go call the camp association. So I'm um, working on this summer model. So uh, thank you. Good luck with everything. Good luck with your senior year. Um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. And I am um, maybe I'm probably will be in DC at least in a few months or so. So I'll- uh... oh, Ping me. It's a, you know, for what you want to do, it's a great town. I thought I'd be there for like a year or two and that I didn't leave except for when I come out to Colorado, so. That's awesome. Yeah, that's good to hear. I'm excited. Excellent. So, all right. Well, okay. have a lovely day. Thanks, Bye -bye. you too. Bye.